0: How do you stop a derailment? Last week uh, I talked about the train that hit a landslip near Stonehaven uh, two years ago uh, and came off the tracks. Uh, The investigation into it found 20 recommendations, came up with 20 recommendations aimed at stopping it happening again. But how much better to stop the derailment before it happens? So that lives are saved and carnage is prevented. And that's what happens in this chapter. A derailment is prevented. This chapter tells us about an intervention by those whom God has appointed to leadership in the church to stop a disaster. An intervention by those whom God has appointed to leadership in the church to stop a disaster. And yet it's not about their wisdom and, and their quick thinking. As we see in verse twenty. It's, it's the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the Holy Spirit leading and guiding them. As they formally meet together, as they open God's word, as they discuss how to apply it to the situation in front of them, the Holy Spirit works through them. And because of the work of the Spirit, the gospel keeps chugging along the track. And that's really what's at stake in this chapter. It is the spread of the gospel. That's something we might miss if we looked at at chapter 15 here by itself. But, but we come pretty fresh from looking at chapter 14 and so we realise what's at stake. Satan has been trying to stop the spread of the gospel through persecution there in chapter 14 but he's failed. So now Satan is trying to stop the spread of the gospel by introducing false teaching that will divide the church. As we saw last week, that's not the intention of the men who are bringing the false teaching. They're described as believers in verse 5 of the chapter. And yet, if people believe their teaching, they will fall from grace, uh, to use Paul's words in Galatians. And we too will face similar challenges, whether it's a theological error, uh, as it is here. Or whether it's interpersonal conflict in the church that that threatens to lead to division. Whether it's it's public sin in a church member that, that some would rather not see dealt with. Whether it's a, a minister and elders acting as if it's their church and not Christ's. The question isn't whether these sorts of things will happen in churches today. They will and they do. The question it's not what will happen. It's not will they happen. The question is, what do we do when they happen? Because often in in churches and in other assemblies of God's people, uh, conflict comes, uh, and maybe it's never dealt with properly, or it's dealt with in the wrong way, and uh, you have a situation uh, can easily arise where, where lots of people end up leaving. Uh, or if it's a small church, the, the whole thing can just fold. And one of the reasons people leave is because there's no higher body that they can appeal to. Uh, whether, whether elders or, or members of the church. Uh, and a, a decision is made, they don't agree with the decision. There, there's, no, there's no appeal, there's no recourse. And so people, live, uh, people leave. Uh, but here we see a local congregation of God's people... Appealing to a wider body of apostles and elders. And as a result, disaster is averted. Not just in the congregation in Antioch, but in other congregations as well. And the gospel train keeps going. So, how do you stop a derailment? Or or rather, what structures has God put in place by which a derailment may be prevented? Boys and Girls, but when I talk about a derailment i 'm talking about a train when a train comes off its track, so and whenever whenever that happens when, when a train crashes and goes off the train tracks it 's so, so a really serious thing uh, and, and people can be killed when that happens. But here we're we're thinking about the the church is like a like a train that's taking the gospel out to the world, and what we want is for the church to stay on the tracks and and, and for the message not to, to get not for the message uh, not to get derailed. So we have three headings this morning and they're they 're printed on the sheet there. The first heading is "Local churches must have a higher authority to appeal to when something goes wrong yeah, so it 's a bit of a bit of a mouthful, but local churches must have a higher authority to appeal to when something goes wrong. Sometimes you can identify the moment when something dangerous starts happening in a church, at least in hindsight. And here in verse 1 it's easy to pinpoint where the trouble starts. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved. So the problem comes when men from Judea come demanding that Gentile converts to Christianity be circumcised. But where do they come down to? which congregation are they teaching this false doctrine in well the answer is Antioch Uh, you'll see that if you look back to verse 26 of the previous chapter Uh, the heading above those last few verses in chapter 14 tells us that this is Antioch in Syria uh, which is for us today is in modern day Turkey And Paul and Barnabas are there when the false teachers come. Uh, We're told here in verse 2 that they have no small discussion and debate with them. uh, Which is just another way of saying that they have a a big discussion and a big debate. Uh, But after that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others are appointed to go to the apostles and elders at Jerusalem to discuss the question. Uh, And so they go to Jerusalem not because... The church in Jerusalem has the power to decide things. But because that's where most of the apostles are. I'll notice in verse 12 that Paul and Barnabas don't simply go to Jerusalem to ask for a verdict. They go to participate in the discussion. But nor is it simply all the apostles gathering together. Because that would have no relevance for us today. But rather in verse 2, it's the apostles and elders who they're sent to. In verse 6, it's the apostles and elders who gather together to consider the matter. And nor were the apostles and elders two completely separate categories. In 1 Peter 5, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So Peter, even though he was an apostle, was also an elder. And so, a gathering of the apostles and elders is actually a gathering of elders and fellow elders. And that's simply what we try to replicate today through presbytery. You may have heard me use the word presbytery, and when I use it, I try and give a brief explanation of what it means. And I normally say something, it's, it's like the ministers and elders of our different congregations meeting together. So where do we see something like that in the Bible? Well, we see it in Acts 15. Uh, the word presbytery is also used in the King James Version in 1 Timothy 4, uh, where, where Paul tells Timothy not to neglect the gift that was given him by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Uh, The word presbytery is is very closely related to the Greek word for elder. So so a presbytery is just a council of of elders meeting together. Uh, That's how the phrase is translated elsewhere. But whatever we call it, the point is that here in Acts 15, there is a larger body of elders that the church in Antioch can appeal to. So this council, this presbytery, It makes its judgment. It decides that circumcision cannot be required of new converts. And that judgment is then communicated back to the church in Antioch. There are a few other things that they say that they should do. uh, Which we'll not uh, have time to get into today. But but the the big point is that, that they say they're not going to lay any further burden on them. They're saying no to circumcision. And that's not just a suggestion. Uh, That decision is binding on the church in Antioch. And it's binding on other churches as well. Uh, In verse 4 of the next chapter, if you look across to chapter 16, uh, when Paul is on a second missionary journey with Timothy, we're told that as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Uh, Notice it doesn't say they delivered to them for information. Uh, They didn't say, well, well, we've decided this in in relation to the church in Antioch. It might might be useful for you. Uh, No, they they say they delivered to them for observance. And this is being decided that, that you must observe this too. The council, the presbytery that met in Jerusalem, they had reached a verdict that all the churches were to observe. And what's the impact of that? Well, chapter 16, verse 5, is, is this how you, you would expect the verse to follow? Uh, th- this is what Presbytery declares, verse 5 uh, of chapter 16. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Because, of course, if, if circumcision had been allowed to go forward, well, well it would have divided the church Uh, But rather, this ruling of presbytery that that you cannot force Gentiles to be circumcised, it leads to the church growing. When false teaching is shown up for what it really is, uh, and when the true gospel is proclaimed instead, churches are strengthened in the faith. Uh, They're not strengthened by the decision of the presbytery, but they're they're strengthened because the true gospel is, is proclaimed remember the background to all this what the false teachers have been trying to do is trying to add to the gospel they've been telling people well yes you need to believe in Jesus of course you do but but you also need to be circumcised and that has been burdening God's people it's been a weight on them and so in the letter in verse 24 the presbytery write we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds So God's people were being troubled, they were being unsettled and the presbytery's job was to assess what was being taught and say, well actually God doesn't require that of you. Perhaps if if we hear that a presbytery has intervened in a local church we assume it would be to tell the church, well well, you're not doing this and so you need to do this, this as well but actually a, a presbytery may intervene in a congregation to set the people free from something that their, their local leaders are requiring them to do that the Bible doesn't require them to do. And I'll give you a real life example. Uh, there was a congregation which, which once stopped one of its members coming to the Lord's table uh, because there was something the session wanted that person to do which that person didn't believe the Bible required them to do. And the exact issue doesn't really matter because you could change the details and the same sort of thing will have happened uh, many times in many different places. Uh, and I've heard of, of churches who have said, well, unless you do this, you can't come to communion. And uh, uh, something really, really trivial uh, So those sort of things are are said in churches, but but in this case the person appealed to the presbytery. The presbytery came and looked into the situation and told the session, the local elders. uh, They said that they had no right to stop the person coming to communion. In effect, what they were saying to uh, the local elders uh, was the words of verse 28 here that they were laying a burden on that member which scripture didn't require. And one of the, the great things about having a written confession of faith, a, a written summary of what we believe the Bible teaches, is that individual ministers and individual congregations can't just invent new standards that they expect of people. If something isn't in the Bible, uh, as summarised in the confession of faith, a church doesn't get to require it of someone. People will, will ask us at times, why do you need to have a have a a detailed written statement of faith why do you require elders to to sign up to something when they're ordained why can't you just get them to say "Well, well we believe the bible is that not enough well one of the reasons it's not enough is that next week if i decide the bible teaches that every christian must believe x or do x well then I have no authority to come and tell you that you must do that because it won't be part of the confession of faith that I and the other elders have signed up to. But if I haven't signed up to a written confession of faith, I can just turn around and say, well well, well, you have to do that because my own personal private interpretation of the Bible says that you have to. A written confession of faith, it doesn't add to the Bible, but rather it states what we believe the Bible to teach. So that someone can't come along and demand that God's people do all this extra stuff. So, Don't look on a confession of faith as a burden. Look on it as a safeguard. Uh, and don't look at structures like presbytery as needless bureaucracy or, or as as further burdening the church in, in the, the clearest example in the Bible we have of a presbytery their work is to unburden Christians from something that was being inflicted on them that God didn't want inflicted on them so firstly this morning local churches must have a higher authority to appeal to the elders need that, uh, uh, and you need that. But secondly, uh, and flowing from that, when a presbytery meets, the important thing is what God says. When a presbytery meets, the important thing is what God says. What happens when this council, this, this presbytery in Jerusalem meets? Well, verse 7 tells us they had much debate, and then Peter stands up and speaks. But like the rest of the apostles, he contributes to the debate as an equal participant rather than invoking his apostolic authority. And he reminds them in verse 7 of what God had done, uh, what God had done in sending him to the Gentiles and giving them the Holy Spirit, which are events recorded for us back in chapter 10. So while in a sense you could look at that and say, well, well Peter's just talking about his own experience What he's really appealing to is something that God has done in history and which would go on to be written down in the Bible. And what's Peter's big point? Well to summarise verses 8 and 9 he's saying God has made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles so why are you? He saved the Gentiles and gave them the Holy Spirit without them having to be circumcised so who are you to say that they should be? Those Gentiles are saved by faith in verse 9. So why are you trying to add works? Rather, verse 11, we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Then in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas speak. And again, they talk about what God has done through them. A summary of which we've already had in chapter 14. So again appealing to something God had done which would become part of the Scriptures. And then in verse 13 James begins to sum up. But he also adds his own contribution and he does so by quoting Scripture. Uh, Which of course at this point in the history of God's people, Scripture was the Old Testament. Uh, That's all that they had. Uh, And specifically James quotes from Amos chapter 9. And it's a a really important quote, Uh, we'll get to it in a minute. But notice first the even more basic point, that even the apostles don't say, trust us, we're apostles. Rather they, they, they point to God's word and they apply it to the situation they find themselves in. And both the the Amos quote that James uses and and the way he introduces it are are really important, not just for for them back then, but for us today. Uh, Particularly for understanding how we should view the relation of of the church in the New Testament to, to Israel in the Old Testament. Because some of our brothers and sisters in Christ would say that that Israel and the church that they're two completely different categories, two completely separate groups. Uh, That the prophecies in the Old Testament about Israel were were only ever about the physical nation of Israel. Uh, And to take those promises and apply them to the church in the New Testament would be wrong. But rather, the, these prophecies made about Israel, they're for a future dispensation. They're, they're not for the age of the church. Uh, these brothers and sisters in Christ believe that there are two different, distinct peoples of God uh, and that God has different plans for each. And While we would recognise that God deals differently in different stages of church history our confession of faith that I've mentioned it uses the word dispensations we recognize that God deals differently at different at different times or at least outwardly he deals differently we would say that there has only ever been one people of God God's people weren't originally Jewish because God's people began with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden But once God called Abraham and the Jewish people emerged God's people in the Old Testament are almost exclusively Jewish though with a few exceptions like Ruth and Rahab. But then under the New Covenant what happens? Well God doesn't start something completely new but rather to use Paul's language in Romans 11 the Gentiles were grafted into the Jewish olive tree. The Gentiles don't replace the Jewish olive tree, but they're grafted into it. But it's still the same tree. God doesn't start fresh with a new tree. There's only ever one tree. And so in our day, the church is largely Gentile. Uh, Just as God promised in Zechariah chapter 8, God promised that of a coming day when, when Gentiles would outnumber Jews 10 to 1. And yet Romans 11 holds out the hope of a future great ingathering of the Jews. But all the way through from the beginning to the end of world history there is one people of God. There is one olive tree. The proportions between Jew and Gentile go up and down but there's only one tree. And we see more evidence for that here. For a start... When James refers in verse 14 to God taking a people for his name from among the Gentiles. The word people is often used in the Old Testament for the Jews. But now language of the Jews in the Old Testament has been taken and applied to Gentiles. Just as Peter writing to, to Gentiles in his first letter says, "'Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people.'" It's hard to imagine Peter writing to Jews and saying once you were not a people because of course they were, people. they were a people even as unbelieving Jews they were God's people in name whereas the Gentiles weren't but now they're Christians these converted Gentiles are God's people. And then we have the quote itself. It's a prophecy that God would come and rebuild the tent of David that had fallen in order that the Gentiles, the remnant of mankind, would seek the Lord. The tent of David is a reference to David's kingship. And so it's a prophecy that that a true son of David would come back to the throne. In other words, it's a prophecy about the rebuilding of Israel. And... And the point is that James isn't saying, "Well, well, yes, the the rebuilding of Israel prophesied by, by Amos and by others that, that that it will take place in a future millennial age," but rather James is saying it's happening now. Yeah. It's happening now that Jesus has come and the gospel is going out to the nations. The fallen tent of David is being rebuilt in our day. It's being rebuilt before our eyes and it's being rebuilt with the Gentiles being brought in. Because who's inside this tent? It's both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, yesterday th- there were a, a lot of people a- in the big tents down at the oyster festival uh, and I suppose you could say there were two categories of people there were there were locals uh, you could go uh, those who, who live here uh, and had gone down you, if you, you went down, you would have bumped into a lot of people you know but th- there were also people who who had come in from outside uh, who, who don 't live here uh, but were but were tourists they 'd come because they were on holiday or they 'd come specifically for the oyster festival so, so there 's two two different groups of people in a sense but they come together in the tent and it's the same with this tent there's jews and gentiles in the tent Uh, different groups of people but they're inside the one tent and and noah had actually used that sort of language way back in genesis 9 remember noah's three sons Uh, boys and girls do you remember noah's three sons what they're called shem ham and jabbeth Shem is a father of the Jews, Japheth is a father of the Gentiles. And Noah's prophecy is that Japheth, the, the Gentiles would dwell in the tents of Shem. The, the Gentiles would dwell in the tents of the Jews. So, in a sense, the, the Oyster Festival tent, you know, it's 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 our it's our tent, but but others are welcomed in. Just as the, the tents of Shem. It, it is a, a Jewish tent, but others are welcomed in. And so here in Acts James is quoting a prophecy About one big Jew and Gentile tent Prophesied by Noah Prophesied by Amos Fulfilled in the book of Acts And still being fulfilled today And so to 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 make the point that James is making here, of course there can't be separate ways of salvation for Gentiles. No, we can't require them to be circumcised because there's only one tent. It's the tent of of David's great son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way into that tent is by trusting in him. That's the only way uh, there's ever been into the tent. The only way of salvation is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, what your background is, when the apostles and elders meet together the important thing is what God says. They point to what God has done among them. They they point to what what God has done and is written down in the past. And because their eventual decision is in line with God's word because it's based on what God has done they can say verse 28 it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us because the Spirit works through the word. The Spirit works through the Word. Uh, So that's our second point this morning. When when a presbytery meets together, the important thing is what God says. Thirdly uh, and finally, without elders, the church can't function the way God has designed it to. The office of apostle was a temporary office in the church. The office of elder is permanent. One reason we know that is because the apostles left instructions and criteria for appointing them. So any congregation of God's people without elders are sheep without shepherds. And without elders in the wider church, if an issue occurs in one congregation, they have no one that they can appeal to. And so we need to pray for elders for our own congregation, for other congregations in our denomination, for for our sister denominations. And in fact, in a month's time on the first Lord's Day of October, there will be a global day of prayer to give thanks to God for the elders who have served in the Worldwide RP Church over the years, but also to pray that God would raise up more. And I would encourage the men here, To be open to the fact that God may one day call you to this role. We live in a consumerist age where people want to take rather than give. Where they're happy to drift through life and don't want added responsibilities. But Paul writes to Titus and says if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that is elder, he desires a noble task. We're specifically told in Matthew chapter 9 that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. If we see people the way Jesus sees them, eldership won't be something that that the men in the church will, will rule out as a possibility just because it sounds like extra responsibility because those who have the heart of Christ don't want to see sheep without shepherds we follow a saviour who said the son of man came not to be served but to serve and if we truly follow him we will have the same attitude even apart from the fact that finding true joy in life comes through service the most joyful people I've known have been those who have Poured themselves out for Christ and His kingdom. Not necessarily in an official role, but even though they may have had many family and work responsibilities, Christ and His kingdom came first. They sought first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Now, eldership isn't for every godly Christian man, elders have to be able to teach. Not necessarily from the front, but but at least one-to-one, maybe in a small group setting. And not everyone is gifted for that. But almost all the other qualifications of elders are character qualifications. And they're things that every man here should aspire to. Because they're things that every Christian should aspire to, whether men or women. And that qualification of being able to teach also means being able to detect false teaching. Uh, what's the best way to be able to detect false teaching? Well, uh, well, it's not to go home every night and read a thousand page encyclopedia about cults and heresies. But rather the best way to be able to detect false teaching is to immerse yourself in true teaching. And that will train you to sniff out anything that sounds a bit odd but it will also if you do it right cause you to grow in grace which, which studying false teaching won't do uh, so the need for elders and although deacons aren't mentioned in this, this chapter the church needs deacons too perhaps next year there will be a worldwide day of prayer for deacons we've done ministers we're going to do elders uh, so I think deacons is probably in line for next year we certainly need to pray for deacons for our own congregation Uh, deacons aren't called to be able to, to teach or to call out false teaching but they are called to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience So both elders and deacons need to have a strong grasp of the faith. And that's one of the things that that our new study on the Shorter Catechism can help with. Uh, There's no one who won't benefit from this time-tested summary of the Bible's teaching. But we do have a particular need to raise up a generation of men who are firm in what they believe and who would see the call to office in Christ's church as one of the greatest privileges of their lives. It's easy to complain about women in leadership in the church but why does that happen? It happens because men don't step up. Now this final point it might seem like a bit, bit of a tangent but it's, it's relevant to what we have here because without elders local congregations can't function and without a wider body of elders if an issue arises in one congregation there's no one to appeal to and without deacons the elders will spend a lot of their time on practical issues uh, uh, which uh, may not be the, their, their strong point uh, practical issues uh, uh, and mercy ministries which may not be their strong point uh, and either way it, it'll pull them away from the spiritual oversight that they're called to but what's the relevance of, of this for those who aren't elders and deacons and who may never be which will always be the majority of people in any congregation, will end with with some practical applications. Firstly, if you're a member of this church or another Presbyterian church, realise that you have the right to appeal to a wider body of elders. If you think a decision made by those in leadership here or wherever your home church is, if you, you think that a decision made there is, is wrong, you have the right to appeal. I realise that you have that. The second application is pray. Pray for your elders. Uh, and pray that God would raise up more elders, both uh, in the congregation and in the wider presbytery. I uh, pray that God would guide us to make decisions which don't go beyond his word or fall short of his word. The third application is realise the importance of your elders here being involved in the work of the wider presbytery. And that may mean some sacrifices for us as a congregation. It it will mean there are times when, depending on on what role I have in presbytery or what committees that that I'm on, uh, there there may be, be, be times, you know, a week here or there when Uh, The work of presbytery takes up time that I would otherwise be devoting to the congregation here. Having a presbytery also means a financial cost. Uh, There there are lots of costs involved in the running of of a church that that the average uh, person in the pew, understandably, never has to think about. Uh, And for a Presbyterian church, one of those costs is helping cover the expenses of presbytery so for for example the cost of of travel for the different ministers and elders coming to presbytery Uh, here in verse 3 we're told that paul barnabas and some of the others were sent on their way by the church Uh, and that word it includes making sure that they have practically what they needed for the journey Uh, the same word is used in titus 3 where paul says do your best to speed zenos and apollos on their way see that they lack nothing in Acts 15 the church is sending Paul and Barnabas and some others on a 250 mile journey and they're making sure that they have what they need for it. Now I, thankfully I only have to do 100 miles not 250 but that still comes at a cost as do flights from Stornoway I, And so each congregation contributes a a proportion of those costs based on how many members they have. Uh, So so I'm not not here saying I need need diesel money to get to Glasgow, these things are covered. But I'm just telling you that these are, are covered out of some of our givings as a congregation. And perhaps if we just saw those costs on paper we could begrudge them. But this chapter tells us why they're important. And if a crisis came here and we needed presbytery to intervene, we would want that safety net. Uh, so, so, so there is a cost to being involved in something bigger. There's a cost here in Acts 15. There, there's a cost for us. Two more applications. Fourthly, there are no Christians in the New Testament who aren't under spiritual oversight. There are no Christians in the New Testament who aren't under spiritual oversight. And it should be the same today. Ministers and elders need to be under spiritual oversight. I need to be accountable to a wider body of elders, as does James. Ordinary Christians need to be under spiritual oversight too by becoming a member of a church. If... You go long term without being a member anywhere. It is a spiritually dangerous place to be. Not being a member also means that you don't have the right to raise concerns or or appeal decisions that are taken here in the congregation. It also means that when when a committee of presbytery comes to visit our congregation uh, for a, a health check, uh, as as happens every uh, every number of years, one congregation gets gets a, a health check, as it were, every year. Well, if presbytery comes and they want to, to see what's going on in the congregation, well, well they will only. They, they can understandably only listen to feedback from those who are members of the congregation. And so for, for them to get a, a representative picture of what is happening here on the ground, uh, they won't get that if a lot of those who attend aren't members. But finally, finally, and with this we close, remember that no structures, not even God-given structures, can stop a church derailing. It should sober us to think that the Church of Scotland still operates on a Presbyterian structure even though it has long since abandoned the Gospel as a whole. So no structures are feel safe. And yet I trust you will leave here today with a grand vision of the Church of Jesus Christ made up of Jew and Gentile and that you will leave here thanking God for the safeguards he has put in place that by his grace the gospel might continue to spread to the nations of the earth. Amen. Well, we respond to God's word by singing Psalm 67C. Psalm 67C. Page number down at the bottom is 140. Psalm 67C. And the psalm begins, O God, to us show mercy. Uh, obviously that means mercy in the terms of 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 salvation first and foremost but also we can sing it and pray that god would show us mercy in keeping us from derailment that god would show us mercy by keeping us on the right tracks Uh, that that he would prevent us being derailed by error or division Uh, and why why would we pray that Verse 2, that so thy way most holy on earth may soon be known, and unto every people thy saving grace be shown. We pray that God would show us mercy in keeping us from derailment, that the gospel would continue to spread. Psalm 67C, we'll stand to sing praise.